0: the reason why we are in the book of John is because of chapter 20 verses 30 through 31 that scripture says and the, the apostle John would write these words and say truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book so there's so many signs that it does say that If it was written in books, they wouldn't be able to be contained on the earth, right? So John specifically picked certain signs in order to bring about his purpose in writing this letter. These are written, what's his purpose? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that, believing, you may have life in his name. Every week, I want to start with this reminder. This isn't just a gospel for unbelievers to then read through and all of a sudden have belief in Jesus, but this is a gospel to help us believe. And some may sit here and say, but I already believe. I've went to church for years. Yes, but just like I said on the last song, there's times that you believe that God is healer, but he's not healer for you, that he's not going to do it for you. Like, I, I want us to have the belief that That God is going to do what he says he's going to do because it's in his word and it's true and we're going to stand on it no matter what it looks like. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego going to the fiery furnace, they prayed, they still ended up in the furnace. Yes, we know there was a miraculous deliverance in the end, but what was their words? It doesn't even matter if we get delivered from the fiery furnace, That's the kind of faith that I want us to have. That's the kind of faith I want to have. It doesn't matter if I'm being put in the furnace. What matters is yet will I praise you because I know you and I believe in you and I know that your word is true and that by believing I will have eternal life. I don't want to get to the very end And see them throw me in the fiery furnace, only to have that thread of faith be shriveled up in the fire. And so John presents this gospel in a way to strengthen believers' faith. Every story that we have read, every miracle that we have seen is pointing to the purpose of who Jesus is. I got to be honest with you. I, we were sitting down Monday, and I think I've said this before. Teaching through this gospel has went completely different than I thought it would. I actually thought, let's preach through the gospel of John every so many you know months or years. As we rotate through things, we hit certain topics. Like, there's a lot of miracles in the gospel of John. We're going to talk a lot about the miraculous of God and how he still heals, how he still moves, how he still brings deliverance into people's lives. I thought it would be completely different. But what has come out of it is a total different understanding of why Jesus did those things, which honestly, for me as pastor, has only strengthened my faith in who he is. If you look at every single story, John the Baptist at the beginning in chapter 1 pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. This isn't about who John the Baptist is or was. This was about who he was pointing to. If you look at the gathering of the disciples, all of the gathering of the disciples, he could have told the story any way that he wanted to. But in the gathering of his disciples, they were excited to say, come and see, I found the Messiah, the son of God. When the water was turned to wine, this isn't about the fact that God can turn water into wine. Of course he can turn water into wine because he created the water. But then Ryan brings a completely different perspective that God showed him, that it was pointing towards his death. It was showing who Jesus was, the cleansing of the temple. Of course, Jesus goes in there and he stands for righteousness and he wipes the place out. But what was the whole story about? Pointing to who Jesus was, the secret meeting with Nicodemus. Love the story, love the, the story of Nicodemus and his life and how he came to salvation and and the end of his story and what we know of Nicodemus but what was that whole secret meeting about it was about him coming to know Jesus Christ as the son of God the woman at the well we can talk all we want about the woman at the well and how hard it must have been and how she'd been through several husbands and she's getting water and the midday heat and to avoid everybody else and all of those issues but what was the story about it wasn't about the woman at the well necessarily though she's included in that story by the grace of God it's about showing who Jesus Christ is as the Son of God, the healing of the nobleman's son. Of course, we could talk about how Jesus didn't even have to lay hands on somebody to see healing take place, but by just the power of his word that he can bring healing. But that's not what the story was about. The story was about pointing to who Jesus is as the Son of God. Then we have the man healed at the pool of Bethesda. We could talk about how a lame man is simply spoken to get up and walk and just with those words that jesus would speak directly to him that he would stand and take up his mat and he would begin to walk and that god still heals he still moves and all of those things are true but what did jesus use that miracle for he used it to make a point to the pharisees recognize who i am I am the son of God. And then the feeding of the 5,000. Crazy story that 15,000 people could be fed off just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And God can multiply. And he is Jehovah Jireh, God our provider. But that's not what the story was about. Of course he can. Because he's the creator of heaven and earth. He can do anything that he wants. The story was about Jesus is the son of God. And then we have the fact that he would claim to be the bread from heaven. And then Jesus attending the feast, fea- the feast of Tabernacles. And I am the living water claiming all of these things. And then last week, Ryan preaches on the woman caught in adultery. And I've preached this story many times. And I can tell you the perspective I would have probably preached that from before this series is about the woman and how she was looked down upon in her society. And she was like one rung above a slave in society. That she was more than likely a prostitute and was being taken advantage of because some man dumped her or something tragic happened to her. and There was no other way, just like the woman at the well. And that they were using her and, and she was the worst of the worst in society. And yet men still went to her and they had this, this hypocritical attitude. I could have put you in tears over the idea of who this woman was. But then Ryan preaches from a different perspective. And what was that perspective? Jesus is the son of God. I don't know. Maybe I caught that and you all thought it was something different. Yes, he's full of mercy. He's full of grace. Where are your condemners now? Neither do I. Right? Get up and go and sin no more. What was Jesus really doing? He was showing to the Pharisees that brought her before him and saying, listen, I will show you one more time. This is who I am. I am Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. This is what this gospel is about. Who is Jesus? As we finish John chapter 8 today, what we're going to do is we're going to see is that he is being the master of, teacher listen Jesus didn't go around just whispering the truth once like his you know his brother said go and do this then Jesus went in private and then he didn't stay in private when he went to the feast of tabernacles he stood in front of the people not once not twice but if you read the story it's built upon and it's several days in a row that he begins to exclaim who he is the same lesson to many people several times over throughout the day Each and every single day. And so we're going to see that he's come to shine his light into the darkness of man's mind, their understanding, their thought. Now, when I read through this this week, I thought, How do we approach this? Because I feel like we've been learning about Jesus as the Son of God multiple times. Then I read this, and I'm like, well, really, Jesus taught this every single day while he was there in Jerusalem to the people. Same lesson, over and over and over again, trying to drill into them, understand something. This is who I am. I am the Son of God. It's okay that we might hear it a thousand times, right? So we'll just preach through this. But as I begin to read the story, I also notice that there was something going back before. Uh, Back and forth with Jesus and the Pharisees and some people might look at the story between Jesus and the Pharisees and what they might see um, Is like there was this jury taking place. They were putting Jesus on the spot He was bringing facts about his life and then they would approach the next aspect and that's the way it would go I saw what I would call tit-for-tat. Everybody knows what that is I think that this is a good idea for us to read through this, and I'm going to read through it today, and then I'll, I'll get to the, the portion of the sermon uh, that's probably a little more normal. Just reading through it and looking at the tit-for-tat that takes place between Jesus and the Pharisees. Because what I find amazing is how Jesus responds every time they throw something up at him. Because in our lives, our struggle when somebody tries to do something to degrade us is to do what? If somebody tries to chop us down, we want to chop them down even lower, right? I don't know about you, I, I grew up with friends like that and so I'm used to that. I remember I used to love to watch things that I shouldn't, this is before I was a Christian, like comedians and your mama jokes and they would have insult contests with each other and the one guy would be like, hey, your mama have a wooden leg with a kickstand, right. she stand like this. And the other guy would be like, your mama has a mouth in the back of her neck, and she chewed like this. <laughs> right? So you just sit there, and you go going back and forth, and they're insulting each other. And so that's a joke, right? They're joking, and they're insulting each other. How often does that take place in our personal lives? How many times, for example, if you're in a relationship, I'll use marriage because I'm married. Does one of you say to the, your other spouse, to the spouse, do you say something like, why haven't you taken the garbage out like an entire week? And you'd be like, I, what do you mean? Why haven't I taken the garbage out? I, I take the garbage out all the time. You no, know, yeah, it sat there all week. Well, why is it that dishes have piled up for the last few days and you haven't done dishes, right? Tit for tat. Oh, yeah, so I, I let the dishes sit all week? Well, how come it is that you can't even put your clothes in the laundry basket all the time and then I got to pick them up whenever I do laundry? Oh, you do laundry all of a sudden? And so... This is an example, this is not an example of my home. <laughs> there are examples, those weren't them, because my wife does everything for me. I'm spoiled. Have you ever been like that, or you're in a fight, huh? and you're like, what's wrong with you? Why are you acting like that? And, and you're like. What do you mean, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? I don't have anything wrong with me. Well, then why are you acting like that? Why'd you just respond like that? What do you mean, why did, I, why did I just respond like that? What about you? Why did you just ask me that? Because you got some issue going on or something? No, I didn't have an issue. You're the one that hasn't been talking for the last few minutes. Well, maybe I haven't been talking for the last few minutes because you didn't ha- because there was nothing to talk about, and I just didn't have anything to say, but then you've been acting like you just are all silent over there playing the silent game, and then you know, I'm playing the silent game? What about you? You could have been talking about things all along, and, and I'm not the one that, well, why are you Raising your voice right now, then. I'm not raising my voice right now. Yes, you are raising your voice. No, that's because you're being sarcastic with me and you've been saying stuff like that. And I'm not. Ra- has anybody ever escalated like that? Yeah. Again, I'm not trying to use my marriage as an example, but that could be an example in my marriage. Hopefully, we're not alone. But we get into this tit-for-tat game sometimes. And the goal of that is really to break each other down. And what I want you to see today is the Pharisees attempt to do this with Jesus, except there's an exchange of truth for lies. And every time they speak something that is an insult to That it's a lie. Jesus will exchange that lie for the truth without attempting to insult them. His intention is not to insult anybody, though the truth sometimes can be received as insulting. And so we'll see Jesus approach this conversation, this dialogue, in a way that I think we should pay attention to. John chapter 8, verse 21. Jesus said to them, if you see verse 20, it was kind of a conclusion. He had said that he was the light of the world, and and then it concluded. And then he comes back, and this is considered probably a new day. He says to them again, so he's speaking to kind of the same people again. It's talking about Jews who are the Jews don't get the idea that all Jews are bad This wasn't every single person more than likely This was the religious leaders and groups of people that were around those religious leaders It wasn't even every single religious leader. It was probably a sect of religious leaders that were coming against him and uh, There's just general people in different places of faith and belief that were surrounding these circumstances So he says Jesus said to them again Here's truth number one that Jesus is going to throw out. Truth number one, he explains this is my purpose, Jesus' purpose. I am going away, and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. Now, what's he referencing? Jesus is obviously referencing his death and resurrection. And, of course, what he's saying is those who reject him, Those who will not receive him for who he is into their lives will not join him in the afterlife. True statement. So the Jews respond to Jesus' true statement with insult number one. Insult number one is essentially you have no purpose. Jesus says, this is my purpose. They're wanting him to understand you really don't have a purpose. You're a purposeless person. Because what do they say to him? They say, oh, will he kill himself? Because he says, where I go, you cannot come. So what are they saying? Were they really wondering, was Jesus going to kill himself? No! That isn't what, they were totally sarcastic. Because the Jews of Jesus' time, what I've read, is that they taught that the lowest level of Hades, uh, essentially, I don't want to get into a breakdown of Hades, but the lowest level, you'd be in hell hell of hell, were for those who committed suicide. And so they were literally Mocking Jesus as being less than. Obviously, we're not going to follow you to the lowest depths of hell. We know where we're going because we're righteous people. That's what they were saying, like, oh, if we can't go where you go, you're go, you going, that's because you're going to hell, and we know that we're not going to hell. So they're kind of taking this religious argument and debate and turning it on him and being very sarcastic and cutting him down. But Jesus, rather than get caught up in the sarcasm, he attempts to explain the truth that he just spoke more clearly. Verse 23, and he said to them, "'You are from beneath, I am from above.'" Now, beneath doesn't necessarily mean they're from hell, but he, he'll he get to that. He says, you are of this world, and I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins. Here comes truth number two, who I am. For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, Most translators add the word he for clarification. What Jesus really said is, for if you do not believe that I am, you will die in your sins. The Jews, they can't follow Jesus because they belong to two different worlds, right? Jesus belongs to the world from above, and he's saying, you literally belong to this world. The idea when we give our lives to Christ is that Jesus has called us out of this world. That this is a temporary place. That we're not, though we are in the world, we're not of the world. Like this is, this is just a place that we're here to hopefully help him be revealed to people all around us. So that in the end, in the real world, that we can all be there together with him. And so he's simply explaining to them what you need to understand is is you're from a different place. Your origin is is from below. But you have to understand, you may look at me as a human being, but I'm telling you that my origin is from above. And so he reiterates to them that they will die in their sins. But this time he adds for clarity what we already know. You're going to die in your sins if you don't believe I am he. He's trying to get them to understand it is him that they need to be looking at. Otherwise, they're going to die in their sins. Now, what's their response? Verse 25, insult number two, they look at him and they said, and who are you? Can you imagine what would your response be? Somebody looks at you and says, you know what? You're going to go to hell unless you believe in me. Would you not be like, and who the are you? Who do you think you are? And that's their response. Like, are you kidding me? I'm going to die in my sins because something to do with you? Like, my life is directly connected to who you are? And the truth is, they don't really want an answer when they're asking the question, They're insulting Jesus for who he is. They perceive like, oh, all of a sudden there's this arrogance that's coming off of him. He is nothing to them, unfortunately. And so it's just another insult. And who do you think you are? And so Jesus says to them, again responding, not in a way as they are gradually cutting him down, mind you. First, they're telling him he's going to go and commit suicide, and he's going to be in the lowest depths of Hades. then they're questioning, you know, like, who he even is, right? And so he responds to all of this without cutting them down even further, but with facts. And he says to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, which is referencing the resurrection, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father taught me, I speak these things and he who sent me is with me the father has not left me alone for I always do those things that please him as he spoke these words many believed in him now listen as he's speaking through this I want us to understand nobody could question that he does the things that pleases God there's no argument There's no debate that comes against him. He's just showing them, go ahead and point out any flaws that you are aware of in my life, and nobody has an answer for it. And in the middle of just this exchange, This tit-for-tat, back and forth, and Jesus isn't playing into their game. I don't picture him even yelling in these circumstances, raising his voice, getting all fired up. He's just simply responding with the truth and with clarity of that truth, that people, as they are watching him, start to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so he pauses for a moment in the game of tit-for-tat, and it says that he turns his attention to those who are hearing his words, responding to the truth of Jesus, and he begins to give them some instructions. So these words are to those who believe. Verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my my disciples indeed, and then you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Verse 33, They answered him. Who is they? Well, we don't know if it's the believers, right? There's this debate on who they refers to, those believing or the unbelievers who are listening. But he turns to the crowd, the group, and he addresses them. We, uh, and answered it, they answered him, I mean, we are Abraham's descendants, and we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say that you will be made free? So regardless of who it is that's talking in this statement, I want us to understand real quick, They're speaking in ignorance because Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, have been in bondage for almost all of their lives. They've been in bondage to Egypt, to the Philistines, to Babylon, to Persia, to Syria. And currently at this time, they're under bondage to the nation of Rome, right? So Jesus responds to them. most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. So he wants to show them this isn't about something in the natural. This is something in the spiritual. And when he talks about whoever commits sin, I want you to understand that that's in the present tense. It's an ongoing, continual committing of sin in their lives. More than likely, he's referencing sin in your life that you continue to do without really ever addressing it, repenting from it, or desiring to change that sin in your life. Verse 35, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Verse 36, therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So Jesus, all of a sudden, he goes from the truth is what will set you free to clarifying what truth is. And what does he say? It is the son who will set you free. I am the truth. I am the one who will set you free. So verse 37, truth number three, he progresses. Now he's brought it from in the, na- the natural to the spiritual about who is your father. And he says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants. Jesus acknowledges that, right? This is their natural lineage. But you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. Like, listen, I want you to understand though I'm a Jew too, we do not have the same father. They answered and they said to him, Abraham is our father. So he's mentioning fathers again and he wants to clarify. They want to clarify. No, we have the same father. And Jesus says to them, listen, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. What was the works of Abraham? Before the law, Abraham had faith, right? That's what the Bible says. So they weren't doing the works of faith. But now you seek to kill me. He, he, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Again, he's bringing out this, this separation. He's not saying who their father is, but he's saying your father is not the same father as mine, and your father is not Abraham. And so they said to him, insult number three. If we're talking about fathers, and we're talking about children of the fathers, so they say to him, that's fine. We were not born of fornication. We have but one father, and that is God. So I don't know if you recognize they just threw in insult number three right there. They're like, you're saying that Abraham's not our father. That's fine. You know what? At least we don't come from an illegitimate situation. At least we're not a little bastard child. At least we know who our daddy is. And if you're wanting to say something about who our dad is and it's not Abraham, then let's take it to the next level if this is spiritual. And our father is God. Like they're completely missing Jesus, and at the same time, they're trying to slam Jesus more than likely because they're aware of the situation of his mom potentially being pregnant and not necessarily the community knowing who the father was of Jesus. So in a sense, they try to turn this into, who's your baby's daddy? And they want to go back and forth about who is, who's the real father of, of Jesus, who's the real father of the Jews. And so Jesus isn't going to go down that truth, that, that, that path, I mean, because he isn't here to insult them. But he is going to give a little more detail to clarify what truth is. So listen, he's not arguing with them. He's just trying to bring truth and understanding to them. So as they're cutting him down, Notice, first he was going to go to hell because he's going to commit suicide. And they're like, who are you? Because you think you're somebody special. You're nobody to us. And then now they're like, you know what? At least we don't come from an illegitimate uh, relationship. You don't even know who your daddy is. And so all of these insults, he just continues instead of getting into the tit-for-tat game to bring them truth. So he says to them, listen, you can say that God's your father, but if God were your father, you would love me. Wow. Wow. That's a statement, right? For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you're not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. Oh, but we all come from the same God. We're all God's creation. We're all God's children. Y'all know that New Age talk or Christian lovey-dovey talk from the Seeker Sensitive Sloppy Agape Church. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't go down that road. He's like very clear. Listen, we ain't all from the same, right? Your father is the devil. And he's not even saying it in an insulting way. He's speaking truth. And so he says, "Your father the devil." And then he goes on, "The desires of your father you want to do." So let me give give you some facts about who your daddy is. He was a murderer from the beginning. We don't know if Jesus is referencing the fact that Satan, has, that he's referring to Satan in the influence of Cain and Abel, or the fact that he murdered eternal life with Adam and Eve by enticing them into sin, which brought death to mankind. But he says he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. He's the resource of lies, for he is a liar and he is the father of it, meaning he's the father of all lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? Here again, he challenges them like, listen, look at my life. What can you say about my life? Just, if you're not going to hear my words, open your eyes and see what my life is. And he says, and if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of God. I just think of how many times, and I don't want to get into this, like, picking on Christians thing, but how many times in our own lives do we know what God's word says, and we still choose to go against God's word? Sometimes that's in big decisions, sometimes it's in little decisions, but how often do we listen to the father of lies? And we know they're lies, but we want to accept the lie as truth because we really are caught up in probably the feeling, the emotion, the potential, you know, whatever we think is going to be good for a season in our life. And so we choose that way, we we make those choices because we don't want to hear God's word because of what it might mean to our life at the time, how it might change things in our life, how it might take away the fun or, or what we perceive as joy, how it, how it might do something that would cause us to potentially suffer or, or hurt a little bit more. We have to go through some things and endure some things. We don't want to have to face those things. And so we choose the lie we don't want to hear. And that's what Jesus is trying to get across to them. Like, you are choosing the lies right now. Why is it that you don't hear me? Because your father is currently the devil. Doesn't mean he's always got to be the devil, but right now you're choosing him as your father in life. Like so many times we don't choose God's path and we instead choose the devil as our father. What if we looked at it like that? Would that change our perspective of when we decide what we're going to do in life? Like, eh, you're not a good enough father right now. I think I'm going to go in this father's way like that's that's a totally different like perspective I don't want to choose to go under Satan but that's what we're literally doing every time we choose sin into our lives and allow that sin to come into our life and then turn us into slaves to sin so where am I at verse 48 the Jews answered and they said to him insult number four bad family do we not say rightly rightly That you are a Samaritan? What is that? Do you think that they were just throwing out that he's a Samaritan? Of course, Jesus is a Jew. What were they trying to do? They're trying to cut him down even further. Because the Jews absolutely despised Samaritans because Samaritans were half-breeds. Part Jew, part Gentile, they were a mix of people when they shouldn't have mixed in the ten tribes of Israel, they've come back, they weren't allowed to worship in the temple, so they created their own temple on a different mountain, and that they try and follow the same word of God, but only the first five books, and they're looked at as being the scum of the earth, they're not real, they're fake, they're phony, and so what are they saying, oh, aren't you a Samaritan, and then they go on from there, is, is, that's not bad enough, insult number five, and you have a demon. Do you see how they just continue to chop at Jesus' legs to lower him and lower him? And so how does Jesus respond to the fact that they have continued? Oh, you're going to go to hell. Uh, that's where we're not going to go. You're going to commit suicide. Uh, who are you in life? You don't have a purpose. You don't. We don't even know who you are. You don't know who your daddy is. Your family, they suck too. And you, you're a bad person. So it's not bad enough that they want to rip on his rip on who his family could potentially be, but now he has a demon, and what they're saying is he's crazy. Verse 49, Jesus responds. Listen, he doesn't even address the fact that they said his family is from Samaria, that they're Samaritans. He skips it. It's not even a big deal to him. Why? Because to him that's not an insult, because he loves the Samaritans. In fact, he's ministered to the Samaritans, that he's seen a whole village saved just in the stories that we read from the woman at the well. He's not here to knock on them or let that be a cut into his life. Like, you can try and cut me down and say, you know, whatever about me when it's referring to somebody else, but I love that person. That's what Jesus is saying. So he addresses number five. Oh, you think that I'm a bad person? And he says to them, I honor God. Truth number five is addressed. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father. And you dishonor me, and I do not seek my own glory. There's one who seeks and judges. I want you to understand, he's, he's kind of addressing the fact that it's demonic to glorify yourself. That's what he's saying to them. Like you guys, this is why you're of, of your fathers of the devil. Like you seek to glorify yourselves. I'm over here honoring God in my life. Most assuredly, I say to you, truth number six if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. What's truth number six? Jesus is greater. Verse 52, then the Jews said to him, insult number six, essentially what makes you so great? Now we know that you have a demon. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead and the prophets are dead? And who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answers in verse 44 to bring light to the insult. He explains to them, listen, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Now, I don't know, theologians aren't sure how Abraham saw the days of Jesus, but it's a statement that Jesus makes that we accept. Verse 57, then the Jews said to him, adding to their insult and their disbelief, you're not even 50 years old, and you say that you've seen Abraham? Now, I just want you to to again get tit for tat is taking place, but Jesus is really just speaking truth to the situation. All of you are sitting here, why I could have just read this at home, are you doing this? What I want you to see is that he is like taking the nail called the son of God and he is hammering it in to the framework of society. He is driving this home into the religion of that day. I am the son of God. They keep cutting him down to make him seem like he's not the son of God. No, no, you're not the son of God. You're going to end up in hell. I am the son of God. Who do you think you are? I am the son of God. Who's your daddy? I am the son of God. You've got a bad family? I am the son of God. You have a demon? I am the son of God. They're continuing to question him. And so what does he say in verse 58? He responds to their question about how old he is and how he could have ever even seen Abraham. And it says in verse 58, Jesus said to them, sons out, guns out. Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Do you get what just took place? They kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting, and just when you think they've cut him down completely to his waist, he does a mic drop on him. If you're not getting it any other way, I'm just going to tell you, yes, before Abraham, I am. I am. What was I am? I am is Yahweh. Like, I am. I am God. That's why I keep trying to tell you that in order for you to not die in your sins, you've got to come through me. In order for you to be able to have life continually you've got to come through me he's trying i don't know if you get this as much as they're cutting him down and insulting him jesus is not responding in the same manner i believe in love he's trying to really get them to understand that's why he would even play the game of tit for tat is he wants them to come to know him as their personal lord and savior now people can attempt to to question what jesus just said but if you read the response of the Jews to Jesus' last statement of the game tit-for-tat, you should know that had it, been in, it had to have been a very serious truth that he just said. Like there was this truth bomb that just blows everything up because they are literally like, this is war. If you think that what he said wasn't what he said, oh, he's just saying that he's a good person that's become a prophet and he's a great teacher. If you think that he just said, you know what, he, he's gradually becoming God on earth and that he'll ascend and he'll become some glorious, you know, p- person or God in the world that is equal to the other gods, whatever it might be. These guys looked at him when they said that in verse 59, and it says, They then, they understood what he said. They then took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them. And so passed by. What were they going to do? As soon as he said that, we're like, we're done playing tit for tat. You're dead. They were going to stone him. They wanted to kill him. What he said was so serious, so blasphemous, so horrible to the religious at the time frame, that he'd put himself in God's position that he is definitely false. And we're going to kill him. There's this sequence of, of biblical truth in the tit-for-tat. You'll see the purpose of Jesus. You'll understand that if you, you'll die in your sin if you don't believe in Jesus. Jesus is from his father above, and then he gives this detailed explanation of who the devil is, just in case you're wondering. Jesus doesn't have a demon, but his response to the insult details that their, ac- the, their actions that reflect their father is of the devil, right? What is their actions that reflect the devil is their father? The fact that they dishonor Jesus and they seek their own glory. They dishonor Jesus and they seek their own glory. And finally, the fact that Jesus is greater. All of these points is the Apostle John continuing to hammer down the truth of who Jesus is so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing we may have life, eternal life, In his name. Now, I want to address Jesus' instructions that he gave real quick in verses 31 through 36, mostly 31 and 32. Because this is the personal application that should be for all of us. He said, If you abide in my word, everybody say abide, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. He said, if, everybody say if. If, 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 if. You have a choice. If you abide. What does it mean to abide? It means that you dwell there. The idea of the word that's on the screen. You dwell there, that you endure there, that you are present there, that you remain there. Everybody say remain. That means that... His word is such a part of your life that when life becomes hell, that you don't leave that, but that you remain in that, right? That you tarry there. The, the way that I look at this is the abiding aspect means that you understand in some ways, uh, I'm not a sci-fi person, but may the force be with you. You have this force around you, Right? This is God's Word. This this is the atmosphere of God that is around me. This is the environment that I help cultivate in the Word of God. And it surrounds me. And He says that if you will abide in that, that you will live in that truth, that your life will reflect that truth. That, that you will get the bread, his word, inside of you, that you're being fed, that you're being strengthened, that you have that water, the water of life that is refreshing you all the time, that, that you are abiding in that, that you are in the light. You're being illuminated and guided by his word because you see everything in light of the word. I see that they're insulting me. I see that they're cutting me down. I see that they're making fun of me. But I see through the light of God that they have a heart that needs to receive Jesus Christ. So I don't need to play the game of tit-tat and cut them down. I just need to speak the truth of God's word to them, no matter who they are, no matter how much it hurts, no matter what they're saying against me, so that they can hopefully see the light of God that's inside of me too. To be in the word of Jesus is to have a whole new life. To abide in my word. I want you to understand, he doesn't say my words. This is singular, not plural. What is he saying? That you will abide in the sum of Jesus' teaching, which is summed up in himself. That I will abide in him. In fact, he will address that later in this gospel as the crucified and risen son of God. And he says, by this, you are my disciples indeed, like you are truly my disciples. You know, there's there's three categories when it comes to Jesus, those who are unbelievers, those who are phony believers, and those who are true believers. And those who are true believers, you should be able to see the fruit of their life because you can see that they're abiding in, In his word. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. He's saying that the mark of a true disciple is lasting your ability to endure, to persevere, to keep on in the environment of the word that is around you. Listen to. To temporarily taste the truth of God's word, the beauty of God's word, the value of God's word, the power of God's word, the grace and mercy of God's word. To temporarily taste of the fact that it is the, the bread of life, that it is the water of life. To taste of his light, the brightness of the word does not make you a Christian. I can taste of those things, but the mark of Christians is that we taste and stay. I can get a taste and leave and walk away. But he's talking about the ability to remain, to persevere. John 6, 68, he wrote, To whom shall we go, his disciples said, when he said, Are you going to leave me too? They said, You, O Lord, have the words of life. Number five, Jesus then says, you shall know the truth. Now listen, preach topically, this can mean a lot of different things, but truth does not refer to some philosophical idea or the opposite of what is falsehood in life. It is the knowledge of God revealed in Jesus Christ. That is the truth. Knowing this truth is knowing God. God made present in Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. You know, it's interesting that Jesus does not present himself as some self-evident truth, meaning like he doesn't expect those who are listening to him right here to grasp the fullness of this truth all at once or to look at it and assess, is this really valid through some sort of logic and research? They will come to know him as the truth if they live with him and they remain connected to him and to his word what Jesus is talking about is not you come to this conclusion based on a reduction of what's true and what's fake but based upon your experience I have experienced that Jesus is the truth number six once you experience that it is that truth it is the son that will make you free to take jesus's truth seriously about setting us free you first have to believe this that we are all enslaved to powers that are beyond our ability to master every one of us we're enslaved to something in life and it is beyond our ability to break free from that that we have got to have jesus in our life to set us free there's nothing in this verse that the truth shall set you free that alludes to these modern ideas of that frees you up to then have your personal freedoms in life. That you, There's some principal focus in this, that it's about being set free from the clutches of sin, from the power of sin. This isn't so you can continue, as Paul would write in the book of Romans, in sin. It's not that personal liberty to just keep doing whatever it is that you want. It's that he died to set you free from the power of sin over your life. And now we can't, like, look at this because so many Christians in here have heard this and heard this preached, and it just easily washes over you. It's because we've grown accustomed to this Christian ease in our lives. This is just church talk. I think that we do Jesus a disservice when we reduce freedom being mentioned here to the freedom of, uh, from our inhibitions or it's freedom from the cares of life. Like he sets you free from these things that you have these tendencies to do. Or he sets you free so that you no longer have, you know, all of these worries and all of these things. What he's wanting to get across is his death, purchased our freedom from the power of sin. It is so much bigger than every one of those things. And the point is not just that this took place in Christ alone to the exclusion of of all things, all others, you know, all people, all things. Uh, It brings true freedom from sin and true belonging in God's household. What I want to say about this is it's not just, it's that Christ himself does it through his work. And what I'm trying to get across, I know I'm probably confusing, the truth shall make you free, is this, that he's talking about the fact that he's not giving us a bunch of new principles to follow that are going to set us free if we will follow these principles. He's not talking about, here's a new confession. If you just would confess that you believe this way, that if you you would confess these things and follow these principles, that all of a sudden you're going to have freedom in your life. No, what he's demanding in saying this is that you have a relationship with him. That you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This isn't about coming to church and thinking church is going to change your life this isn't about reading the bible every single day and thinking that reading the bible is what's going to change your life this isn't about you coming into church and hearing the pastor say that this is should be a practice of our life every single day and oops if you miss a day life is messed up this isn't about that this is about him telling us that the truth shall make you free when you come to him to him not to some principles not to some good teaching, not to some great sermon, not to some good music that moves you, but when you come to him and learn what it means to dwell in Jesus and his word. And so many times when we hear this, like, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, we automatically think of, like, people who struggle with addictions in life. And it's easy to point out. Like certain addictions, you know, go to AA and celebrate recovery and all of these different things in life in order to be set free, that the truth shall set you free. But Jesus isn't even talking to a bunch of addicts here. When he makes this statement, it's not to the heroin users that were sitting next to the pub. He makes this statement to a bunch of freaking religious people. Not to a, a, he wasn't standing up and giving a speech at your local Celebrate Recovery. He's looking at all those that already thought they were good enough. All of those that already knew the word of God. All of those that already believed in God. He's looking at all of these religious people and he says to them, if you know the truth, it is the truth that will set you free. You not the person over there, not the person you're thinking in your mind, oh, if I could just get them to come to church because they have so many problems going on in their life, you know, because they have this issue and that issue and they're struggling and, and, they, and we just can't seem to break them free and they just need that freedom. And they're like, No, he's talking about you. You who's worried about somebody else's issues. You who's caught up in all of the other stuff that's going on in the world. You who's worrying so much that it's driving you sick. He's talking to a people who are caught up in their own religious identity. This is who I am. This is what it should look like. This is is my heritage and where I come from, and this is my background in the church, and this is what I was taught to believe, and these are the practices of my church and how we do things, and this is how it should be done because we're the ones that really know more than everybody else. I'm talking about you. Jesus wants you to know the truth so you can be set free from all of that religious garbage. All of those religious judgmentalisms, all of that religion that binds you up without you even realizing it, and yet lies to you because as you practice it, you think that you're practicing something that gives you freedom and you're missing the one that died for your freedom. If you're not careful, you deceive yourself because you're so caught up in your church practice that you think that you're good and you're not. Just because you come to church, because you're missing the God of church, Jesus Christ. He's not just someone that I I can hear about, but he's someone that's in my life. That's what this is about. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And Jesus said, the Son will set you free. Indeed. Indeed. True freedom comes from dwelling with Jesus, not just believing or assenting to a higher practice. Finally, the last thing I want to address real quick is that Jesus also states to those who believe, because this is about us: "Most assuredly, I say to you, if anybody keeps my word, he shall never see death." If everybody say "if," if 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 if, if, if anyone keeps my word. They will never see death. In John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus said, Most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has. Everybody say has. They already have it. It won't be attained. They already have it. They have everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. But they have passed from death to life. What does that mean? when you accept Jesus Christ into your life as your personal Lord and Savior, and he becomes real to you, and he's a person, and he's a part of your life that you have passed into eternal life. We're already living eternally right now. That's what he says. We've already passed from death to life. That's over. Eternal life, by definition, cannot be stopped. So Jesus is able to say, believers, won't see death they won't even taste death our body lies to people why because it dies it lies there in a coffin and it looks like it's sleeping our flesh dies but we don't when you're with jesus you'll just pass into timelessness with him there will not be one millisecond of broken fellowship with jesus You are his now. You won't see the end of your eternal life. You won't taste the end of your eternal life because there is no end to your eternal life. To sum up everything that I wanted to say that I believe Jesus has spoken to those who will hear him, I want to close with this adapted story that I heard from It's an example from another pastor. I view what Jesus is trying to get across to them and to us today is like this. When a father leads his four-year-old son down a crowded street, that crowded street, I picture New York City, millions of people in the streets, full of people that they don't know. The, The little boy doesn't know. The son doesn't know. People who might be for them people who might be against them, people who may want to harm them, people who believe and people who don't believe. But what does the father do? The father looks down and he takes his son by the hand and he says, hold on to me. He doesn't say, memorize the map or take your chances, dodging traffic. Or let's see if you can find your way home. No, the good father gives the child one responsibility. Hold on to my hand. Hold on to my hand and abide with me. When the world is overwhelming with its ways, remember this. If you will abide in his word, you are his disciple indeed. Let's learn what it means to hold on to Jesus and abide with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I just ask if there'd be anybody here struggling with truly believing that you are their God, alive and well today, that this word will minister to their heart right now, that your word is known as the living word. That it's able to come in and bring transformation into our lives. That we will know that we know that you are the son of God. That you are who you say you are. That your word is truth. That your promises are yes and amen. That you're not just a God for somebody else. That you don't love somebody else more. Desire better things for them. But that you love me just the same. Lord, I pray that we will grab hold of this in this busy season and learn what it means to truly abide in you, to abide in your word, to be able to remain in, the, in your presence. That I just picture the, the circle of life around us everywhere we go, whatever we say, whatever we do, we're going to abide in you. We're going to remain in that no matter how hard life gets, when people throw punches at us, We're not going to punch outside the force field. But we're going to live in truth that you may be glorified in our lives to the world around us. Lord, I pray that there will be a stirring of passion inside of us to want to spend more time with you each and every single day, knowing that personal intimacy just strengthens our faith and helps us to remain in that circle, that environment as we go throughout our day. Lord, we want to live in that peace. We want to have that joy. We want to see your goodness all around us. May we know that we are already blessed. In Jesus' name we pray. We all say,